Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the architect and educator, Lee Ivett. Ivett lives and works in Preston and is the founder of the participatory architecture, art, and design studio, Baxendale. Baxendale is a practice best known for developing low-budget, socially-led projects within communities across the UK. And Ivett frequently collaborates with artists, makers, dancers, choreographers, growers, academics, and musicians to generate projects within a range of spaces. He's also a senior lecturer and course leader for the Bachelors of Architecture program at the Grenfell Baines Institute of Architecture in Preston. I initially met with Lee in person in Glasgow when I was up there this past November with my teaching partner David Owen and our students from Kingston University. We recorded a discussion inside a project of his called Kiosk, which is a kind of miniature community center in the Govan Hill neighborhood of Glasgow. But there was an issue with the recording, so we ended up speaking again on Zoom in January of 2022, discussing, among other things, his feeling at odds with his early architectural education and its disconnect from the social and economic realities of the city around him, leading to his desire to form a practice that is embedded in the communities it serves. We also touch on the successes and challenges around his work in terms of the scalability of a practice that focuses on small and socially-led interventions and the complex relationship between some of Baxendale's projects and the communities for whom they've been developed. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. So I wanted to start by asking you a question that I haven't asked a guest before, but um, in this case, it seems to make sense. So I wondered if you could tell me about your mother. Uh-huh. And <laughs> and for listeners who might not be aware, the reason I'm asking you that is because the name of your practice, Baxendale, is your mother's maiden name. So the the kind of origins of the, the name is, I suppose, inspired a bit by... All, all, all range of questions that I think come up when you're starting out and looking to develop a, a, an identity for yourself or, or, or a practice or um, trying to situate yourself in some way. And I, at the time, had quite an aversion to both the traditional way of naming an architecture office after your own last name and putting and associates after it or and somebody after it. And I also had an aversion to a kind of trend of trying to come up with something trendy as well. So at the time, I was kind of trying to find something that wasn't trendy and wasn't traditional either. And um, I kind of had a... But still connected to family, you know, and the person I was. And I also didn't want to use my own name because I also had a dream that I would create something that wouldn't be just about me 
and in the end it's kind of mainly ended up being mainly about me and I kind of failed in that ambition <laughs> like <laughs> entirely failed in that kind of ambition to create some kind of wider studio that, that, that hid underneath this name of Baxendale and my mum's maiden name was kind of personal because of the situation of my mum being an only child and a kind of side of my family that was essentially going to or had died out, you know, and I kind of wanted to continue feeling connected and give recognition to uh, an element and a side of my my, my life that um, was, was potentially going to be got be, be lost as well. Mm. I mean, how did she react to that when she found out what you called your practice? Um, I think she was um, kind of yeah. I think th- I think I think she was pleased and 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 proud that I decided to. I think also because it, it it's really an explicit recognition of my my granddad and my grandma. You know, on that that side of the practice and the involvement that they had in terms of my own upbringing and, and experience. Um, and I think, you know, my, like my granddad was someone who tried to do things. He had his own construction uh, business at, at one point. He ran his and had his own hotel at one point. He had was someone who was always trying to make something of himself in, in, in some form or another. And he was someone also who had kind of got knocked down and, and had to pick himself up again a few times as well. And so that, and, and I've ended up having to do that. I mean, I've ended up feeling like a bit of an only child at times in, in my profession and, and my career. And I've ended up having a kind of um, re- start feel like, you know, points I've felt like I'm starting again, I suppose. And re-attempting to do the things that I've got an ambition to do. What do you mean by that, an only child? Well, I I mean, I started working for myself because I couldn't see anywhere to work that would allow me to engage in some of the, the things that I was interested in and some of the um, ideas that I had and, and, and the agendas I had. I think the reason I asked that question is because it seems like in a lot of the work you do, you're working against the grain. I want to go back and talk about your undergrad at uh, Strathclyde and your experience there and first encountering a different way of thinking about your education, maybe a way of thinking about your education that was in opposition to um, the agenda at the school itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the first things that that struck me um, was just like the question of why, you know, it's like the, there's a few things. I think one was the question of why am I being asked to design this thing in this place? And even though none of the briefs we were getting at university were, were live projects or real projects, I was still interested in why I needed to design another art gallery in Glasgow or something. I, I was interested in why... <clears throat> needed to do housing in this part of the city versus another part of the city. Um, and I was also increasingly interested in why we didn't make things as well. You know, I was kind of, I mean, we we made models, but um, I, I was missing maybe like a kind of deeper connection with actually building stuff. Um 
And what I did find, though, was within Strathclyde at the time, there were people who were very, very engaged in a kind of more social mode of practice. There was elements within Strathclyde that were, you know, essentially coming at architecture from a, a, a pretty Marxist position. There was people in Strathclyde who actually had set up practices years ago looking at some of these issues. There were people who were trying to run units that looked at community engagement and consultation. So there was like this stuff, but it seemed to sometimes be kind of detached from the, the slightly detached from the, the kind of curriculum agenda of the undergraduate programme. And you kind of had to go looking at it, looking for, you know, looking for it, or it had to kind of hit you in the face. Um, but I found in second year, you know, the other key thing that happened at Strathclyde was in second year, we were given a brief to design a, a, a paddle centre uh, on, on the canal. And I went to look at one of the sites and it was adjacent to um, an area of Glasgow um, called uh, Postle Park, um, uh, Postle Park, Hamilton Hill. And I had never seen poverty or I'd never, I'd never seen poverty visualised through the condition of the architecture and the urban environment and the street. I'd never seen anything like it ever that was so visceral in 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 the the manner in which people were having to live you know i mean i I couldn't kind of believe that um back then in whatever 1999 2000 or something that people had to live like that you know and and then i was and and obviously i'm interested in why people have to live like that Like, like what what creates a situation and and then at what point as architects do we have any influence over that like where's our role start and begin within those kinds of discussions so Mm. from that point on I was very 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 attuned to and started thinking about what my um or what what the impact of the architecture was going to be on all people all of the time and also uh, (laughs) where, where where could I influence? You know, at what point, as an architect and design, like where, where does your influence, or where could, or where should our influence as architects and designers begin within, you know, the kind of process of conceiving and developing and delivering architecture or, or design? Mm. That I remember an anecdote you shared the last time we spoke about actually walking, or maybe even running to that site. Um, yeah, and so you're on foot the whole time while your classmates, I don't know took public transport or something. And it was on foot that you encountered these instances of extreme poverty. And there was a real dissonance between that experience, that encounter, and um, the research interests or design agenda of the architecture program itself. So you're kind of living with this or working with this dissonance and trying to make sense of it and trying to understand what role you could play in addressing issues of, of poverty in the city you were studying in. Yeah, and I, and I think the other thing that I probably started to learn at that point in time was that there's no better way of understanding a situation than just to be present and active within that situation you know, in a kind of 
a lot of even the, you know, like analysis tools that we were maybe getting taught or using, um, and not just in the undergraduate program, but when I started, you know, doing the urban design course as well, you know, was still looking at maps and plans and colouring them in and saying, you know, there's cafes here and offices here and housing here and green things here and tree things there and water things there. And then you would look at some statistics and, 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 you know, for me, just be, just being in a place and registering it through your own human experience, your own emotional experience, your own physical experience. I under started to understand that that was actually far more informative um, and that your own instincts and your own reactions and your own discomfort and your own, like all of these things actually for me were informative and actually mm-hmm. were, were, were or could be or should be a, a mode of research, a kind of a more empathic, situated, lived mode of research than um, maybe some of the kind of normative modes of analysis and research that, that, you, that you, would, you would find in an, in an architecture school. It's interesting that, so at this point, you're developing an intuition about a way to practice. And that intuition ultimately brought you into the world of urban design, urban planning. That's what you did your master's in. And it seems at face value counterintuitive because these terms you're describing as being problematic, you know, the... The, the planner's view where um, areas are zoned and statistics are referred to, and we are in many ways off the ground um, looking at master plans. Um, your alternative to that is to somehow situate the practice and to be on the ground and amongst the, the people you're designing with and for. Um, and uh, you've said elsewhere, just to get back to that, that question of like reconciling the dissonance, I guess, of the education you had and the reality you were experiencing. Architecture is often framed as both the problem and the answer uh, when it comes to destitution, when it comes to urban poverty. And so with that in mind, how were you coming into the urban studies program? What were you, what were you trying to do? Well, I mean, I decided to go down that route rather than the kind of advanced architectural design route or the computer-aided design route or the, the kind of other strands that, that, that we could look at when I was at Strathclyde because I I suppose I'd started to appreciate um, the, 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 the reality, the tension that you just described, that, you know, architecture is, you know, the... The solution but architecture tends to be the cause and it kind of gets built up and demon you know it's like simultaneously built up and knocked down literally <laughs> and uh and i also became uh, something i became quite aware of was how like somewhere like glasgow has knocked down bits of itself and rebuilt it about four or five times in the course of like 120 years so you start thinking well you know like uh, what everything's been tried all the architectures have been tried you know the the uh the um the terraced house the tenement house the tower block the mega block knocked all that down back to the tenement block back to the street but you know yeah like it's all been built and knocked down (laughs) 
had restarted. And so you think, well, so it's okay. So it's not just the architecture. And so the urban, you know, doing urban design at least had uh, an explicit appreciation that there has to be something more, you know, that, like there has to be a greater consideration than, than the object. Um, and that consideration might be the street, it might be the pavement, it might be uh, life, it might be the spaces in between, the parks, it might be the cycle routes, the uh, or it might just be social life, cultural life, economic life, you know. And so I felt that doing urban design started to kind of introduce me to a, a discourse or a practice or, or a mode of design thinking that at least, at least went beyond the, the building. Um, and that some of the kind of answers I was looking at, I might find them within that discipline. And then the other thing I wanted to do was challenge an orthodoxy towards master planning, basically. I mean, that was the other thing I realised quite quickly was a lot of urban design and a lot of regeneration was um, kind of built on a, on a premise that you make a plan and it's quite a long-term plan. There was a lot of, you know, like imagine what it should be in 20 years, imagine what it should be in 30 years, imagine what it should be in 40 years. And I, I found that really odd, you know, and I've kind of found that this long-term visioning quite often prevented immediate action and that I could see and the people who lived in these neighbourhoods could feel that the things there was things that were pretty obvious that were not good and needed some level of response and you can't wait, you know, don't wait in, you can't actually wait a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. You can't wait for 200 million, 50 million, or even 10 million pounds of capital investment to, and, and shouldn't have to wait for that to start addressing some of these issues. So I wanted to kind of counter the idea of the large kind of urban reimagining of, right, we'll knock it down and we'll redesign something else. I wanted to kind of not do that again. And I also wanted to think about, okay, what could you do right now, this week, tomorrow, this weekend? What can you do with £50, £100, £1,000, £2,000, £10,000? And how could you also use those smaller scale acts to build a kind of critical mass, to test ideas, change behaviour, address immediate problems? But also at that scale, you could involve people in the making of those things, as well as involve them in the kind of conception of those things as well so everything I started doing at that point tried to kind of critique I suppose the, the current orthodoxy of not just master planning regeneration but also the way in which we engage with communities and the way in which communities participate in the in the design process as well. And so this methodology of these small-scale more immediate interventions is really at the heart of how Baxendale as a practice operates. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I had, you know, I mean, I, I kind of had a probably a, a, a well, did have a dream, I suppose. Part of the dream when I started doing that kind of work was that it would end up translating into larger architecture commissions. But what I was kind of hoping was that those larger architecture projects would come out of this process of starting small and getting to a point where what was then needed and genuinely needed was a more significant piece of architecture. But but that need had kind of derived from 
the way in which these smaller scale interventions had helped generate that need or affirm that need or prove that need um, or create the capacity to deliver that need. Um, so there are lots of examples of these kinds of small scale community projects that you've worked on over the years through Baxendale, which are, as you've described, about making space for the conception and development of future possibilities. Uh, and I wanted to talk about one example now to understand what this actually looks like in practice. It's a project called Kiosk, which was commissioned by the developer Duncan Blackmore of Errant Land. And it's also where you and I actually met last November when my teaching partner at Kingston University, David Owen, and I visited with students. And just to paint a picture for listeners, Kiosk was a formerly derelict single-story building between two tenement blocks, which has been reconceived as a kind of spare room for a neighborhood called Govan Hill in Glasgow. And what you've described as a place for civic life to unfold at the smallest scale. So could you tell me more about the project, the motivations behind it, and how it's being used now? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I mean, one of the interesting aspects about that project is a kind of a desire and attempt, I suppose, to shift in, it's like, in a, in a way, shift in scale, but also shift in terms of permanence and duration. So it, it's like got walls and a roof, <laughs> which sounds like, you know, which obviously doesn't sound particularly mind-blowing <laughs> to, to anyone, especially anyone who's an architect. But a, a kind of lot of that work I've done, done previously, I suppose, it, you know, created temporary structures that were sometimes enclosed and sometimes not, and sometimes were something and sometimes weren't. So, so this was a defined space. Um, and, um, and this idea that just a single room, but a room that was kind of bigger than the size of a domestic room, but still smaller than a, a hall um, or smaller than a, an office or kind of smaller than a, a kind of large workspace would help um, look at, I suppose, where, look at whether there's a, there's a value in having um, a scale of space that exists bet between your, the size of your kitchen and your living room and then that size of a, of a village hall or the size of a, an office or a, or a permanent space. So, so as, as a kind of concept, it was about looking at a single street in a single location and inviting people on that street to then um, pick points at which developing something out with the scale of the domestic environment would have a value to them in some form or another. Um, and, and this project has been um, about providing that opportunity. Um, and also then the, the, the variety that it accommodates is very, very interesting. And looking at, again at the kind of point at which design is useful and design isn't useful in terms of what it can accommodate and facilitate rather than dictate. So we've had um, exhibitions in the space, um, but we've also had people come down and just use it so eight or nine people can play a board game. We've had people come and use it um, to organise community activism. Um, we've had people come and use it to discuss and generate community organisations that are um, concerned with um, rent and making sure everyone, you know, trying to establish a living rent, you know, um, alongside things like a living wage. We've had people come and use it for making placards for um, 
protesting at, at COP when that when that was on, uh, and then we've had people come and use it to screen a film as well. So those possibilities. Oh, and also um, like repair their bikes, um, make furniture, restore furniture. So it's it's been very very interesting at seeing you know like how small a space with the least amount of design ends up creating the most amount of possibility. Mm. And I mean, just so people who are listening can picture what it actually is or what it looks like, it's a pretty nondescript um, single-story building, and it has this circular window. And that's really all that distinguishes it as something abnormal or, or unique. Um, but in a way, that's all you need. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think and what was interesting, if I remember when we were talking to your own students about this, um, I think it was also discussing that, that that one window was still drawn about a hundred times before it, you know before it became that simple round window. And even though it was actually always going to be a round window, it was still a round window that was drawn a huge amount of times. And so, again, even even when you're like dealing with a situation where you're in a way trying to keep design and intervention to to the point at which it's absolutely necessary, that doesn't necessarily, you know, um, absolve you from caring about that move to the, to the level at which you would care about any move as, as an architect or, or a designer. So you, you, you might not be trying to play some kind of spatial gymnastics with the, with the kind of space that we've got to offer. But with the application of that one window, and then on the other side of that window, a, a recess, a kind of nook, a, a bench, a series of step benches, you know, like, like you say, th- this kind of engagement with the, with the facade is a three-dimensional thing that can be inhabited on the inside, but then be an invitation to people on the outside is the only point at which we kind of initially determine to, to, to make a move. Now, that, that was, the, the window was necessary because there wasn't actually any windows when when we got the building there was no natural light and so a decision then is is made about whether you kind of open up the facade to be a kind of shop front in the traditional sense but then feel compelled to provide a roller shutter to create security or you try and look at the design of a window that is of a size and a position and a height um, and a design that almost can't accommodate a roller shutter, but doesn't kind of offer the same kind of expanse that that makes it feel insecure. You know, so the kind of the design of that one round window is trying to be exactly the right size at which to not be so big that you can't protect it, but not be so small that it's pointless. And to kind of be visually interesting so that it does invite you to ask, what is it? And also, I suppose, to be vague enough that no one knows what it is either. <laughs> so, so, it doesn't, so, it, so it doesn't look like a new trendy cafe, you know, or it doesn't look like it's a shop and it doesn't look like it's an office. You know, it's like, in a way, um, because the use of the space is something that just is whatever people are doing or however people are behaving in that given moment, then actually the, the, the design of the window and the treatment of the facade, its ambiguity is kind of useful uh, in, in continuing that kind of narrative of a, of a project that 
is more about the, the possibility of what happens in it rather than trying too hard to, to predict that or define it. Mm-hmm. And that ambiguity really seems like an act of resistance as well, um, just in terms of the context of Govan Hill, which is a, a lower-income neighborhood in Glasgow where I hadn't been before, but when I visited, it felt like the kind of place in the city that if um, it hadn't already started to occur, would would eventually become gentrified. I mean, there's a project down the street, um, also developed by Errant Land, um, called Cheap Shop, which is re- rebranded as Ivory Tars, and it's an art gallery um, carved out of an old candy shop. Um, and in a lot of ways, is an amazing community asset, but at the same time, um, when you start to see galleries crop up in impoverished neighborhoods, um, you realize that it's not long before other kinds of economic development follow suit and land prices rise and a whole new different demographic starts to move in. And so, I mean, can you tell me more about the future, the anticipated future of kiosk? Yeah, I I think one of the things that for me for me is important about that project is I suppose the space itself and the content of the space itself um kind of suggests a lack of finality or a lack of finish. You know, so a lot of other yeah contem- kind of contemporary spaces or especially spaces that set themselves up to be contemporary art spaces even when they're kind of taking on an existing building, still, you know, are trying to um, present work or present ideas or present things that that have some kind of sense of finality or resolution or refinement. And quite often, again, that, you know, invites a very particular audience, even when the intentions aren't necessarily that it does invite a particular audience. But there's all kinds of psychological barriers that, various people from different backgrounds have to get over sometimes to like access um, what we see as being contemporary art or contemporary culture. Or, um, and, and so with Kiosk, the, the invitation is very important, you know, and, and again, going back to the kind of ambiguity helps with that, going back to not giving away too much goes back to that um, creating something that is kind of odd and curious, like the window goes goes back to that. So that that people f- I actually want to inquire. You know, that's kind of like, what is it? What happens there? How do I get involved? In, in a way, the architecture and the activity of it does those things in a way that I think a lot of maybe contemporary art spaces that then come into neighbourhoods like that maybe... Have have a tr- trouble doing, you know, even if they want to, um, and I, and I think going back to your observations about Govan Hill, I mean, I think that um, in a way, it's it, it, it's it's hard to, to be honest. It's hard to know at the moment. It, you know, it's it's definitely a kind of contested environment in lots of ways, but it is also an environment where it feels like there is a willingness across a huge, diverse range of um, residents, stakeholders, participants, actors, to try and do something in the right way. Um, 
And so I think the kind of gentrification of it has so far been exceptionally slow, but has been happening. You know, so artists have been you know, moving there and buying property there and trying to establish there now for 20, 25 years. But that never felt necessarily that it, that ended up becoming the identity of, of the area in, in the ways that you know, you'd see in other places in, in London or the UK, or even in Glasgow as well. And a lot of those people who have, have moved into the area recently as well, from a middle class or kind of educated or creative background, um, I, th- I think are very, very aware of what they might end up contributing to <laughs> or are contributing to and a tr- you know, try and mitigate that in ways that I've not seen before. But it, but it is very, very difficult to just resist the forces of capitalism and it is very very difficult to resist the forces of desirability um but in a way i think that govan hill is still somewhere that is um highly populated with different ethnicities different migrant backgrounds um and very very and also very very obvious and visual and, and latent and explicit um forms of poverty as well and so in a way, you, those, these things that kind of um, are balancing each other out, but at the moment not in a way that's necessarily healthy because you don't want it to be any poverty that is kind of balancing um, the, the potential gentrification. You know, you don't want the poverty to be the thing that's pushing back against gentrification because you don't also want to kind of maintain the, the status quo in, in a way that... Um, isn't actually beneficial and supportive of the people who live there. So I think, you know, the challenge at the moment is is the way in which those changes in that area um, actually are, to, first and foremost, to the benefit of the people who have lived there the, the, the most amount of time or who have lived there not out of choice. One of the issues with this approach was that I felt like it always had to be... Well, going back to what I said before about how, you, like, I suppose you use your own situation or your, or your own mind and body within any given situation to register it and to respond to it, that I, I couldn't turn that or didn't want to turn that or commodify that as some kind of toolkit, some kind of... The, the, like toolkits, well, kind of, especially around that time, were a big, big, big buzzword, and it's still a bit of a buzzword that you create these toolkits, and then communities can like, oh, go, oh, that's how you do it, or oh, that's you know, and I, I kind of, the fact that you kind of would turn this into a kind of IKEA instruction <laughs> manual, like I was, I was kind of, I found that odd, and then I suppose what I also underestimated was the extent at which my own personality was a part of it um, and my own either desire or ego or whatever it is that compelled me to maybe take certain risks or do certain things or um, just act and try and have a go and 
I either then, you know, like never had the, I, I don't know, I never had the time where I could never figure out how you then uh, replicate whatever it was I was doing. You know, I, I, I kind of, I can talk about it like this and I suppose I can hope that people listen and start to think about it and maybe follow some of it or critique it or adopt it. But, but, but in the context of a kind of practice situation, I kind of never, and that's again, maybe like failing on my part. I never really found a way in which I could get to a point where I could say, I could say now there's like 10 of me wandering around in 10 different places doing this thing the way I, way I, way I did it. Mm. And, um, and then the other aspect was just how, at this level of inquiry and response and action and like starting stuff, like starting to create a momentum, some of the the, the techniques and the methods and the personality and, and and the way that I did that, then were not seen as being good at the point where something that's conceived as a serious uh, adult. Um, mature piece of architecture and construction is required you know so all of a sudden the kind of flying by the seat of your pants taking risks you know being on the edge of things when it got to conventional architecture delivered in conventional ways by conventional stakeholders in that environment I, I kind of, I don't know, but kind of maybe look like, look like an idiot. <laughs> so it's kind of, and, and so it's like so, something, it was like, well, yeah, he's, he's all right. Kind of messing about down here, mm. causing a bit of a fuss, but mm. we wouldn't want any of that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, now, now, now he's more serious about some money to spend and uh, things have to be done and they have to be done this way and this, you know, like by this point, I don't think that I kind of looked or sounded or, or acted the, the, the way in which people maybe need when, when you get to that, that, that kind of scale. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. There's this threshold uh, that I imagine a lot of practices pass through where they begin um, in a way that is counter to the norm that is anti-establishment or produces some sort of critique of a status quo. And then inevitably they pass through the gates of the institution and become the institution. <laughs> um, and for me, that opportunity seemed to have arisen for you when you were invited to take part in the 2018 Venice Biennale and were kind of invited into this realm of architectural culture that had a broader audience that was interested in the theoretical and the conceptual underpinnings of practice and that also had a, a um, an interest in implementing ideas so happenstance was a essentially a playground that you designed with ambrose gillick um, and i mean even the the subject or the the program of the playground to me is so telling because um, it can be seen as experimental and imaginative but also juvenile and i mean it's both of those things importantly and crucially uh, and seems to embody a lot of the attitude around improvisation and making do with what's available it was all demountable and reconstructable um, and could be assembled i think by a, 
um, unskilled labor um, by people in the community who would ultimately be using it. So yeah, tell me more about what happened um, after Venice, or if that was in fact a kind of threshold for Baxendale. Yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of the end of of Baxendale, like in various ways, and and it kind of needed to be the end of it in various ways. And part of, I mean, I, I saw it in the end as kind of a a useful way to kind of just draw together, I suppose, ideas that had emerged out of a body of work over, you know, I don't know, like a 10-year period. And, uh, you know, we, we had this opportunity to present something in that weird context of, of a Biennale. And when we were asked to be part of a team who was bidding to get the commission for Scotland's contribution. I, I was insistent on a few things. I was kind of insistent that we would make something. Like I didn't want to just pin up examples of my work somewhere. Um, I was also insistent that I would still be able to critique some of the other things that maybe Architecture and Design Scotland or the commissioning body had agendas towards in terms of toolkits, like and in terms of <laughs> uh, in, in, in terms of certain types of community engagement and practice. Um, but also, I mean, one of the reasons that I'd started working with, with with Ambrose and we'd started working together is he had a more academic background and a more academic position but a shared set of ideals and ideas around the way in which this kind of work should and could happen. And it was very interesting over the period of time that me and Ambrose were working together to, to start actually mentally considering and transitioning the work away from, or realising the work was not a business and the work was actually research, actually it was, re, was like live action research all the time. And that that actually the, the value in that work for me was I was becoming increasingly aware of was not in making me money <laughs> and mm. paying my mortgage mm. and trying to sustain myself financially. The value in the work was in the knowledge that was being created out of the work and mm. the ideas being tested and realised and, and adopted. And so we kind of had this opportunity, I suppose, when we did the thing in Venice, was like well, post Venice, we just we we yeah, could commodify this. We could do happenstance projects all over the place, and I just I just did, I, I wanted to start asking the next set of questions. I also wanted to kind of think about whether my own value within practice or within the industry or within the profession was actually still even being in a community, nailing things together, making things, or whether now following something like the Biennale, I kind of my 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 voice was able to be heard within another context of decision making, discourse, conversation, where my involvement in that and the impact of my involvement in that maybe would actually translate, you know, and and and, and grow and develop. More mm. than if I just go back to 
doing that kind of work in that kind of context and that kind of situation. So mm-hmm. I think for me, the Biennale ended up being, it was like this decision where you either go, right, I've done this, got, you've got this exposure, got this recognition and almost got a product to sell. And I was very, very offended by the idea of that actually being what the work would become or the practice would become. And so at that point, I, I was very much of a mind to say, I think I've proven a lot of stuff. <laughs> and then I, and I know to myself, yeah, not even just to like, whatever, but like even to myself, you know, um, and I, I want to really, really now have time to think about it rather than just perpetuate it. Mm-hmm. I want to talk more about how these reflections on your practice have been brought back into academia, into your teaching. Um, um, but before that, I want to I want to focus still on this year 2018 and other things that were happening then that start to um, uncover more tension around this transition, this potential transition from the almost like activist um, agenda you had as a practice and the grassroots intentions and the earnestness of the work as well. Um, and then the way that it, um, during that period, was uh, not only being celebrated by the kind of architectural elite and held up as an um, exemplary way of, of working from the ground up with communities, but also to some extent being vilified by some of the communities you were working with as well. So this came up briefly when we spoke last time, and I wanted to I wanted to explore it more. So there's one um, one event in particular, one project in particular at um, the Govan shipyards in Glasgow, where you'd used a rope to build a temporary structure yeah. that was vandalized, actually set fire to a few days later by youth in the area. And this had been turned into a, like a local news event. Uh, a few papers had picked it up as an example that, um, in a way, this kind of work was not wanted by the communities it was being designed and built for. And it, it was dovetailed with this recently published book called uh, Poverty Safari. So this is a book by um, Darren McGarvey, who I think is a rapper yeah. uh, and you know, social commentator as well. And so there is a real, what I can understand is being a real devastating uh, misunderstanding of the intentions of the kind of work you're doing at the same time that within the architectural community the work was being celebrated and it kind of brings us back to this crux of architecture being the problem and the solution and the architect being in some ways um, vilified and also uh, kind of standing as this kind of cliche savior of a community as well and I can't imagine what kind of headspace you were in at that time. It must have been confusing and distressing, to say the least. But can you tell me more about how that all played out? Yeah, I mean, I, it, was, it was, I mean, there's, there's so much to kind of, I suppose, <clears throat> unpack a bit around that because the, you know, that particular project in, in, in Govan, the kind of rope installation you know, became something that was then used to build a narrative, I suppose, around my career as something that had exploited poverty for my own financial gain. gain. So, you know, like when I was talking earlier about how 
in Venice, I was kind of exceptionally keen to not go down a route where the success of that project became something that was commodified. I mean, I didn't, I would never have really wanted to do that anyway, but this experience happened kind of March, April of 2018. And then, you know, Venice was May, June, July, you know, so, uh, yeah, so we, it went, I was kind of very much in a, in a space where I was questioning a huge amount of what I'd been doing and how I'd been doing it. And not, not necessarily at all coming at the conclusion that all of that was wrong or, or bad. Um, but I, but, but I was interested in the way in which, um, first of all, like the, the, the article that was, that was written that kind of made these accusations of, of me, like I agreed with the sentiment and the agenda of most of that article. I just didn't feel I was kind of the, the, the most likely candidate candidate to be accused of those things. You know, like I definitely agreed and have delivered talks and lectures and myself where I have accused the arts community or the architecture community of creating fairly worthless things to earn money out of all of the funding that is available to to engage and work within these situations. So I'm kind of very cynical of the way in which a lot of community-based practice, social practice, consultation engagement, public art is conceived and funded and delivered. And I kind of had ended up I suppose dipping my toe into different ways of working that that had actually kind of become a bit detached from the way I had been working, which is basically spending quite long periods of time in particular places, making things, doing things, generating a certain type of momentum. And I was, and but as a result of that work, I was starting to get commissioned to do stuff. People were also researching the work that I was doing. Larger stakeholders were also commissioning work um and I was learning that actually I, I I didn't often feel comfortable working in that way because you you were kind of inhibited by the agendas of or other organizations or situations or establishments that actually sat between um myself and the situation that I was actually trying to address or respond to, you know, so you were no longer just really, really, really trying to meet the the needs of the situation of the, that community, of that neighbourhood. All of a sudden, you were being forced to meet the reputational needs, economic needs, um, strategic needs of this thing, this institution, organisation, body, authority, and I found that quite quite difficult. Uh, and then the, the project in Govan, I mean, what's interesting about that is like the way in which it was described in term, as being a failure, it was never delivered in to, to be successful in the terms in which it has been deemed to have failed. You know, it was like myself and another artist had a commission as part of a wider, bigger residency commission that was looking at... Um, former shipyard communities in Glasgow and in Gdansk in Poland and just doing very, you know, kind of immediate or initial acts to 
research, interrogate, acknowledge, engage with those situations. You know, we visited this site, we saw all this rope on the site and we decided to kind of just make and build something actually as an act of research, like actually to use the act of making to be situated there, present there, observe it, engage with the people who use this site in an informal way, have conversations and, and just do something kind of weird and curious in this place. So we, we weren't building a shelter for anyone. We were, you know, and, and we, we would have, I would have took that down myself the day after it got burnt down. And it's like when I went to revisit it and some of the, the kids who had actually informally got involved in helping make it were kind of playing on it and engaging with it. And I asked them, what did they think and what did they want to do? And they would just say, oh, I think we'll set fire to mm. it. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so, kind of awesome. so, so, so it wasn't... It was like a condoned dismantling. <laughs> and, and Yeah, and, and it, it wasn't... So it wasn't like a kind of... Um, yeah, so that I, that I spent a lot of public money making a thing that was meant to be a permanent piece of social infrastructure... And then a community was so offended by it that they burnt it down. You know, like what that that what that wasn't necessarily the reality of it. But I do think that the kind of critique that was levelled at me in various ways within that particular article at the time, I thought there was validity to some of that critique as well in terms of the way I described the work, in terms of me starting to acknowledge that I'd also maybe moved away from certain ways of thinking about and acting and delivering the work. And, and I was starting to learn, like, you know, think about these things myself. And it, and it was another thing that kind of made me think that following Venice, I didn't necessarily want to be a practice. You know, I, I didn't did want to be a practice in the kind of, I, I mean, I'd never been a practice in the conventional sense of the word, but I definitely didn't want to maybe even be a business, you know, any kind of business anymore, hmm. I suppose. And so... It seems like you've moved more towards teaching. You teach at the Grenfell Baines Institute of Architecture and you're a course leader there. How has your practice shifted and what what are you doing as a teacher that has been informed, I guess, by all these experiences? I mean, I th- there's a few things that kind of brought me to, to, this, situ- you know, to this, this situation. So I, mean, I kind of... Um, was because Grenfell Baines Institute of Architecture is in my hometown of Preston, I was immediately drawn to the idea again of, of, of teaching actually as a form of practice and teaching um, as, a, as, a, as a project in itself. And, and I suppose like being in the role of a course leader where you have to, you know, like acknowledge a, a journey and a narrative of student engagement with the subject and experience of the subject there was something about that that also as a project felt related to the way that I tried to work in practice as well it's like the idea of being situated in a certain place and working with the people of that place to develop something was exactly the kind of I suppose methodology or agenda to the Mm. to the teaching that that I kind of brought here you know it's like I'm going to spend a number of years here and that project is about establishing uh, a more accessible, more diverse, more socially and critically engaged mode of architectural education in a place that 
is not fashionable in any you know you know like in in like Preston is is starting to kind of get some recognition in terms of its uh, like Preston model it's kind of um more socialist led economic model of procurement and community wealth building but like I grew up you know I grew up in Preston left at 18 19 to go to university and I was very, very interested in these ideas of what it is to be marginal in any situation. So like in, in Glasgow or other place I'd worked, that marginalisation was, you know, like a, an economic one, a social one, a physical marginalisation. Um, it was a class marginalisation. And I felt like here in Preston, you know, the architecture school was in itself marginal in certain ways in terms of, um, you know, I don't know, yeah, prestige, numbers. Uh, it's very, pretty young, only like, you know, kind of nine nine years old as a course when it started. And so that kind of attitude of engaging in the, the life of a place, editing, amending, changing behaviour, changing cultures of behaviour, um, and doing that through actions and acts, all of that has been part of kind of trying to just change the way in which the architectural mode of architectural education is is delivered at the points that which I've got some agency over that um and the other part of it again is just again it is like I said before it's about it's about place and it's about teaching students to really 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 think about what they're doing why they're doing it and who they're doing it for and I feel like you know, in the context of architectural education, I can start embedding that kind of um, self-critique of the decisions that you're making as an architect and designer at this really, really early stage. So it's not even necessarily that I'm trying to turn this course into every year being some kind of mirror of my own self, my own practice, my own agendas, my own ethics, my own ethos. It's actually more to just kind of embed at every stage a way of really, really, really considering the motivation for every act and, you know, and still within that, still allowing the other people I teach with that their own personalities, their own methods, their own ideas are, are still, there's a space for that everywhere. It's not, you know, like an imposition of what I believe, you know, 100% of what architecture is or what it should be. But, but but there's something there that's underlying, you know, that that is consistent through through there. And there's a kind of framework within which people act and make decisions, which increasingly is is an ethical framework, and it's um, and it's a, a a kind of framework of of a consideration of acts and actions um, and and ideas. And it makes perfect sense that, in a way, you've ended up. Kind of recasting your own practice as a teaching practice. Um, I'm just thinking back to this piece of advice you'd written uh, in the Architectural Review. This is part of a series they had on advice for young architects. Yeah. And you'd written in there um, every time you accept a commission, you're letting yourself be bought. So think exceptionally carefully about who you'd like to own you. And in a way, I'm imagining you becoming the property of your students. Like, 
like the 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 community that you're now committing to is a community of future architects. Yeah. And you bring the kind of skepticism and uh, doubt, but also I think very lively sense of urgency and action to that practice. And to me, what it means is um, we can be really excited about what's in store, who, <laughs> the kind of people that will be, I think, entering the profession after coming through an education like that. Lee, thank you so much for this. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Lee Ivett, and special thanks to Duncan Blackmore for helping to arrange the student visit back in November. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.